If you took 10 people from the community at large who believe in God and ask them, why should God let you into heaven? Out of the 10 people, I believe nine would give you this response. Because I'm a good person. Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, he gives an illustration that shows the disastrous consequence of such a notion. Some years ago, two men were in a boat and found themselves unable to manage the stupendous falls of Niagara. Persons on the shore saw them, but were unable to do much for their rescue. At last, however, one man was saved by floating a rope to him, which he grasped. The same instant the rope came into his hand, a log floated by the other man. Instead of seizing the rope, he laid hold of the log. It was a fatal mistake. The one was drawn to shore because he had a connection with the people on the land while the other, clinging to the lodge, was borne irresistibly along and was never heard of afterwards. Do you not see here a practical illustration? Faith is connection with Christ. Christ is on the shore, so to speak, holding the rope of faith. And if we will lay hold of it with the hand of our confidence, he pulls us to the shore. But our good works, having no connection with Christ, are drifted along down the gulf of despair. Grapple them as tightly as we may, even with hooks of steel. They cannot avail us in the least degree. Do we believe that? Do we understand that this morning? In today's passage, we see once again that it is faith, in the risen Christ alone that saves us, that connects us with the Lord and one another in a relationship that is stronger than any other earthly ties. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, that is Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Does it not seem amazing that after the miracles that Jesus has, has just performed, this is up in the Galilee, heal, the, heal the, the, the blind, the deaf, the mute, the man with the withered hand, casting out demons. After all of this, they're asking for a sign. This shows you the hardness of their hearts, really, these scribes and Pharisees. And yet Jesus is gracious enough to give them one more sign, the sign of Jonah. To those who have trouble 
believing God could have, as it says, prepared a great fish that could swallow a man whole. All I can say is that your God, like your fish, is too small. I believe the story of Jonah is even more dramatic than many realize and more closely related to Christ's own experience, as he says here, in the heart of the earth. Chapter 2 of the book of Jonah begins, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, and he heard my voice. Though the chapter begins with Jonah praying from the stomach of the fish, he immediately relates to something that happened earlier, an earlier incident. I called, past tense, out of my distress. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Sheol is elsewhere referred to as hell or Hades. It's the dominion of death. That place described as the pit of the earth where departed souls awaited judgment. Before Christ, it was divided into two compartments. The place of the righteous dead, their souls, and the place of the unrighteous departed. Jesus talks about this in Luke 16. You might remember Lazarus and the rich man. This isn't Lazarus that he raised from the dead in the New Testament. This is an Old Testament Lazarus. Maybe this, this New Testament's namesake. He talks about how Lazarus, this beggar who trusted God, went to Abraham's bosom. Another name for this compartment for the righteous dead. And then the rich man was in the unrighteous dead compartment. And there was a chasm between them that no one could pass. After Jesus died on the cross, it talks about in Ephesians chapter 4. It says that Jesus went to Sheol and led those in the righteous compartment to heaven. So how could Jonah have cried, quote, for help from the depth of Sheol unless he too had died and his soul descended to that righteous compartment? He goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 3, For you have cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. Obviously, this, this is before being swallowed by this great fish, right? He's, the waves are it's like being inside a washing machine. He's just being pummeled by the breakers. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life 
from the pit, O Lord, my God. The Lord brought his soul back from Sheol, from the pit, breathing life into his mortal body. And that's where we find him praying from at the beginning of chapter 2. Alive in the stomach of the sea monster before being jettisoned. The King James translation of the last line in verse 6 is this. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption. There's destruction, decay. It's an interesting word because one of the Old Testament prophecies about the resurrection of the Messiah uses that same word, corruption. Messianic Psalm 16. And the Jews knew this was something that the Messiah would say. This is coming from the lips of the anointed. Therefore, my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. This is the Messiah saying my flesh, this earthly tent is going to rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. I mean, my body will rest in hope and not undergo decay, will not undergo entropy. Old Testament foreshadowing of the resurrection. This was the sign that Jesus spoke of. This was the sign. See, if you forget all the other supernatural power that has been displayed almost on a daily basis, O Galilee, let's forget all of that. I'm going to give you one sign upon which I hang all of my credentials. The sign of Jonah. Another issue Bible critics have is Jesus' use of the expression three days and three nights. Has that stumbled anybody here? <laughs> For if he died on Friday, as most assume, yeah, we call it Good Friday, right? If he died on Friday, he only had two nights in the, in the tomb, right? Have you ever done the math? You've figured that out? What's that about? First of all, remember this. There are 11 prophecies that contend that the Messiah, the Christ, would rise on the third day. So we know on the third day, we're going to see the resurrection of the Christ. But that would include only two literal nights, right? First day, Good Friday. He dies and was buried. He had to be buried before the next day. That is before the evening, before the night. So he dies the first day, first night. There's the second day, the second night. And then there's a third day. How many nights do we have? Just the two. So how do we answer this apparent inconsistency? 
It has to do with the Jewish idiom, the saying, three days and three nights. It was an idiom that was used just to equate three calendar dates. We find an example of this in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 30, beginning in verse 12, where David, while pursuing the Amalekites, came upon an Egyptian who was famished. And they gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins, and he ate. Then his spirit was revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong? Where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. So, first day, he fell sick three days ago. First night, second day, second night, third day. How many nights? This Hebrew text uses the expression three days and three nights to refer to an event that encompassed only two literal nights. Jesus, therefore, related his death and resurrection experience to Jonah, but the response of their respective audiences were completely different. Verse 41 The men of Nineveh, Jesus is telling the scribes and the Pharisees, shall stand up. They were the religious leaders. Very proud. The men of Nineveh, that's where Jonah was sent to preach. They shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, a.k.a. the queen of Sheba from Ethiopia, shall rise up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This something greater was the nearness of the kingdom of God. For God so loved the world that he sent the king to save the world. Rendering Jonah's message vastly inferior. He's just trying to get these Gentiles uh, there, uh, really, he's not even trying to get them to repent. He's just going to give them God's judgment. He didn't go to Nineveh in a spirit of peace and love. He didn't offer them the hope of salvation. He didn't even, as I said, call them to repentance. This was his message in Jonah 3, 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh It's toast. That was his message. If you were a Ninevite, would you take much comfort in that message? Where's the good news, prophet? There's no good news there. 40 days, and this city's going to be overthrown. 
but a different message. And yet, it says that the whole city turned out in sackcloth. The king of Nineveh himself issuing the decree, let men call on God earnestly and eat, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. They had no promise that God would relent if they repented, and yet they did it anyway. Now here comes gentle Jesus, full of compassion and, and hope with the good news. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is hope for you that you could find forgiveness and fellowship with the king if you repent and believe. And yet, the religious leaders rejected him. What a contrast to the response of the Ninevites that weren't even of the house of Jacob, of Israel, God's chosen people. No wonder the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south will witness against them. For they, the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south, they demonstrated a willingness to believe without all the advantages of these in Jesus' audience that day. That had seen all the miracle. Heard him speak with authority like no other man. You have heard them say, and then he would repeat something that the rabbis were teaching, you know, their interpretation of the word of God. He says, but I say to you, nobody taught like that. Nobody assumed such authority. It's reserved for God alone. So they had witnessed all of that. Now he warns those who choose form over substance, religion over relationship, like these Pharisees who uh, they had a form of godliness but denied the power thereof. He warns them. They have opened themselves up to disaster. Verse 43. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil, unbelieving generation. Four centuries earlier, the Jews had returned from captivity purged of idolatry. You know, up until that time, they were stumbling continually into uh, worshiping other gods, putting other 
things above God. And, and going after, you know, the, these, the wisdom of the age from around them, the other people groups around them, those that were not the covenant people of God, but they were saying, hey, there's this, this idea and this idea, and they were taking that to themselves. They were an idolatrous, idolatrous people. And so through Jeremiah, God warned them, you keep on this path, and I'm going to execute a corrective measure, and I'm going to have a Gentile come and lay siege and destroy Jerusalem and take you captive for 70 years. After which time, because you are my chosen people, you'll repatriate the Holy Land. They came back purged of idolatry. You don't read about them falling, falling into that sin again. They came back with their house swept, their hearts swept and put in order. But instead of cultivating a relationship with the living God like David before them, what, what did, how did God commend, commend David? David is a man after my own heart. Was he perfect? Not unless, unless you think that, uh, you know, committing adultery and murder is per, God's perfection. No, but God saw beyond those frailties and weaknesses said he's a man at the core he's all about a relationship with me that's why in the psalms david always refers to him as my god they came back and instead of cultivating a relationship with the living god they very quickly filled that void with what Religion, a system of do's and don'ts by which they attempt to earn God's favor and by which they judge other people who are not as outwardly righteous, perhaps, so to speak, as themselves. It's just so easy to fall into that sin, a judgmental attitude. This attempt to find their uh, or earn God's favor by following these laws gave them an outward morality, but an inward vanity or emptiness. Unfortunately, we see a lot of this kind of folly in the church today. People join a church, oftentimes, in an attempt to put their house in order. Things are hard, apart from God, and painful sometimes. And so we come to try to find some meaning and purpose in life, and to put our house in order. But they only succeed in becoming religious. That is, fueling a sense of self-righteousness. And their last state as Jesus says, becomes worse than their first. Because now they have inoculated themselves with enough of the gospel to create an immunity. That should scare us a little bit. 
if we're religious in our approach to Christ. They have a false sense of safety, false sense of well-being that outward shows of piety brings so that they never humbly invite Jesus to rule and reign in their hearts. They look to their own good works and say, it is enough. That's why James, uh, J. Vernon McGee writes, the hardest people in the world are unsaved Christian member, uh, church members. Does that seem like an oxymoron? It is not. You're not saved because you're sitting in the pew or watching online today. The hardest people in the world are unsaved Christian members because they think they're all right. It's getting quiet in here. But true safety, true well-being is only found when we open the door to Jesus Christ and make our hearts his home. Long ago, a pastor was visiting a couple's new home out in the country. The pastor spent the night. He was awakened the next morning by the soft voice of a soprano singing, Nearer my God to thee. He was impressed by the piety of the young hostess since she evidently began her day in such a religious manner. At breakfast, he spoke to her about it and told her how pleased he was. Oh, she replied, that's the hymn I boil the eggs by. Three verses for soft, five for hard. <laughs> this churchgoer may have known the hymn well enough to cook breakfast, but does she know the hymn, H-I-M, who alone can fill our hearts with a a sense of wonder, a sense of gladness, a sense of hope, a sense of his presence. You know, lifting our voices in praise and supplication bounce off the ceiling if it's just a song, if it's just words. Amen? We understand that, right? This intimacy, this is what God desires and requires. Intimacy, the kind of intimate relationship that is even closer than that we share between our natural family members, which is what Jesus underscores in the last few verses here, where he identifies his natural family. I, I don't have time to read this last stanza, but I hope you will. He talks about who's my mother and my brothers and my sisters. When we choose to do the will of God, when we live according to the word of God, by the power of God, his indwelling spirit that enables us, we become an integral part of his forever family and more meaningfully bound 
to Jesus Christ and each other than even our natural relationships. I've experienced that. You know, I've mentioned before, when I first came out on the Lord's side, my natural family began referring to me as the black sheep of the family. <laughs> they weren't so jazzed about it. But, oh, my, the brothers and the sisters and the mothers and the fathers that I found in the house of God, within the community of faith. So wonderful. So uplifting. About 40 years ago, I visited Japan for the first time with the music ministry. I went around uh, singing the gospel, and it opened a lot of doors. So we went to Japan. And in Osaka, we went, I was billeted out. Different band members went to different homes. I was billeted out to the Minami family. This is a recent picture of Mrs. Minami and her son, Hirotaka, who was just a boy when I was there in the 80s, toward the end of the, that decade. In the morning, the, the kids were gone before the sun rose, as was the father. He was out to work. So I come down to breakfast. It's just me and Mrs. Minami. And we would pray, she in Japanese, me, English. We couldn't understand a single word of what we were praying. But the sense of unity, the sense of closeness, the intimacy was so thick you could cut it with a knife. It transcended the language barrier. She was my sister in Christ because we had both opened our hearts to him. When we left Osaka, she escorted us to the train station. We get on the train. I'm sitting at the window. She's on the platform. And as the train starts to move, she starts to move. And as it picks up speed, she's now running down the platform, weeping. But you don't understand in, in a culture that majors on stoicism and saving faith, nobody does that. Nobody's willing to open them up, themselves up publicly with such a display of emotion, but our hearts were knit together in Christ. A few years later, I was able to return and introduce her to Kim, my wife, whom she showered with gifts, and Allie, our firstborn, whom she considers, she considers her gaijin, uh, gaijin granddaughter. This is how she, this is her grandchild. Now, that may look like a, you know, a normal McDonald's container, but only McDonald's in milk is in English. Everything else is in katagana. The other day, I sent her a picture of her gaijin great-grandchild. It says, Allie on the left today with uh, Rocco, 
just wanted her to know that her spiritual family was expanding. She had just come out of a eye surgery, and it, just, it was just what she needed. She said, just lifted her spirits. Again, what do we have in common? We don't speak the same language. We don't enjoy the same culture. We don't eat the same food. All we have in common is Jesus. But he's enough to knit our hearts together in a holy, familial love that is more complete and enduring than any earthly love. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. And I hope you're enjoying that relationship. Those ties that bind. And it all begins by being willing to believe in the risen Lord Jesus and receive him to our hearts. For then we are firmly connected. We are rightly related to the only one who can safely draw us to the shore of salvation. That's the message that I find in this text today. My admonition to you, dear brothers and sisters, or those with the potential to be here and online, let us lay hold of him by faith right now. Amen? Please pray with me. Lord, your, your loving kindness, Jeremiah says, it's, it is new every morning. Your mercies, your tender mercies, new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And the greatest display, I think, uh, or sign that would cause us to hope in you for salvation. That when this earthly tent suffers the rigors of entropy, of corruption, that our souls would not descend, but ascend to be with you in heaven, in paradise to take on a new glorified body, a building not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens, a gift from God. Thank you for rising from the dead just as you said you would, using Jonah as a, an Old Testament example. You said you had the power to lay down your life and you had the power to pick it up. You have the power of life because you're the author of life. We put our hope in you, Lord. We lay hold of that rope that pulls us to shore. 
where we can abide with you. We can call you my God, as David did. We can become men and women after your own heart. Do that work in us, Lord. And for those potential brothers and sisters in Christ that you have drawn to this message today, I, I pray that you would prompt their hearts to open the doors and let you in. To be who you are, the risen Christ, the king of all creation, the king of the universe, as the Jews say. And if that's what you want today, or you just want to be strengthened in your faith today, I want you to pray with me. You can do it in the quiet of your own heart. Again, either in this room or in your other room. Just agree with me. Just say, dear Lord Jesus, I, I am amazed. I stand amazed at this amazing grace, this height, depth, and breadth of your love for me. It's unconditional. It's unfailing. And I receive it. I embrace it with all my might, with all my confidence right now. Draw me to yourself that you would fill my heart, you, you would be, uh, or I would be a temple of the Holy Spirit. You would fill me with all joy and peace and believing that I would abound in hope by the power of your Spirit. And for your glory, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.